0: And our sermon series is on the book of James. And I want to remind you for a moment here about who James is. There's a couple people in the Bible, or English Bible, their name is translated James uh, in the New Testament. Uh, one was a disciple of Jesus. That's great, but that's not who we're talking about in this series. The other is the brother of Jesus. And that's who we're talking about, the half-brother of Jesus. After Jesus was born and Mary and Joseph had a bunch of more kids together from, the, from that point on. Uh, James was born with his brothers and sisters and grew up with Jesus. He was the brother of Jesus, but he did not believe on Jesus. He was a skeptic. He was a, uh, he just, I mean, how hard would it be to believe that the guy you grew up with is somehow the Messiah, the Savior of the world? I mean, really, apart from our spiritualizing things later it'd be hard to, to wrap your mind around that. I don't care what, how much your mom loves your older brother more than you or something like that. You know? I'm sure it was hard for James to get his mind around that. So when Jesus started his earthly ministry at the, around the age of 30, James was still skeptical, as were Jesus' other siblings. And uh, Jesus was telling everyone that he, he was there to die for the sins of the world, to pay our sin debt, and that he was going to rise again on the third day to conquer death. James Jesus had told everyone that but most people weren't listening or understanding because most of the people in Israel at that time were looking for the coming Messiah to be a political savior. To set them free from Roman rule to make their nation of Israel great once more and all these things that they had their aspirations towards that were earthly and not spiritual. And so When Jesus said he was a Messiah and he was going to die, instead of conquer, he was going to die. Instead of kill, he was going to give his life and then arise again. People didn't understand that. People didn't get that. They thought, well, no, we want a political savior. And that can't be the Messiah. And James was really skeptical. He didn't believe a word of it. But then Jesus went and did what he said he was going to do. He pulled it off. He died on the cross. They watched it happen. Three days later, he's walking around for the next 40 days after that with, in front of family and friends and 500 other people or so that saw. And it changed everything for everyone. It changed everything for the, the early church exploded onto the scene. But one of the people that was transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ was James. James became a believer in his brother who he didn't used to believe. And James wasn't just a believer, James became a leader, a leader in the early church. He became a man who, unlike the twelve disciples who kind of were naturally in a position to lead in Jerusalem, as the church grew and then scattered, James actually emerged as an influential voice and a pastor, probably the lead pastor, if you want to use that term, of the church of Jerusalem. And eventually he would be killed in Jerusalem by the very people who uh, crucified Jesus, my microphone's doing weird things up here, excuse me. And uh, I think I have some kind of a weird dangly thing here distracting me on my headset. This is not good for the uh, sound equipment here. All right, ignore that. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. All right, anyhow, um, James would eventually give his life. But before he did, this brother to Jesus who became a believer and a leader in the church wrote a letter to the uh, church uh, to the church to churches everywhere, to Christians everywhere, in all sorts of cities all over the place. And in this letter, he addressed a whole bunch of topics that we are studying together this summer. Now, that was my too-long-of-an-explanation for what we're doing with this series on James. And as much as that took me a few minutes to restate, if you want to hear the full backstory to James, including all the scriptures about who James is— we spent a whole week on May 16th doing that. You can catch it online, on Facebook Live, or our website on audio. And I encourage you to uh, check out the story of James there. Before today, we're going to continue studying his book, The Letter of James. We finished chapter 1 last week, and um, we're going to start chapter 2. We're going to read through James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 today. But in order to help us set up chapter 2, we're going to go back and start with the last verse of chapter 1 that we studied last week. Because last week, without reiterating this too much, James was talking about how that many of us confuse what is true righteousness with self-righteousness. A lot of people we believe we're righteous, but we have a very unrighteous righteousness, like it's an angry. He basically said human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. He warns about people who 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 speak first and think later, who are quick to get angry. And he said we should be quick to listen, we should be slow to speak, and we should be slow to get angry. And he said there's a righteousness that God desires, but a lot of times the righteousness that we feel we have is an angry, righteous indignation that is not from God. It is fleshly, even if we spiritualize it. And so he says we, we want to have true righteousness and we want to have true religion. Not proud, arrogant, better judging the world around us and looking down on people and thinking we're better. That is garbage. He says that's, that's, that's the way the world operates. He said what God is calling us to is true religion. It's not worldly. We don't think of the term worldly the right way sometimes. It's oftentimes when God talks about the context of being worldly, Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. He's referring to materialism in context. Or don't be conformed to this world. He's referring to relationships in context of Romans 12. And so uh, James is saying the same thing. He's speaking about anger. He's speaking about pride and arrogance and how we treat each other. And he says, he uses the word filth. Lay that filth aside. Lay that evil aside. Don't be corrupted. Don't be worldly. And he goes from that context to tell us what true religion really should look like. And that's where we left off last week in James 1:27. He says pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And again, there's two parts of that the, the word and there the um, second part of it is what he was saying, which is that it's worldly of us to be corrupted by the, by this world. and and look out for ourselves because this rule is very good at looking out for itself. We live in a dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, do what's best for me, I deserve, I got a claw and get ahead, uh, uh, self-serving world. That's human. Especially if this life is all we think we have to look forward to. It's very human to just do what you gotta do. And Jesus is so clear on that in so many parts of the Bible. Don't be corrupted that way. Don't be like the rest of the world. Some of the things that James is talking about to the church, they're not just church problems. It's easy for me to come to church and say, the church has these problems, but I want to be very clear, the problems like this, these are world problems. These are everywhere problems. These are human problems. Like humanity is very good at all the things we're talking about. What James is saying here, what Jesus made very clear over and over again, is that if we're Jesus' followers... We should not be like that. If we follow Jesus, we should not adapt that, that um, self-serving, get-ahead, divisive spirit, self-righteous, arrogant, anger, all that. We shouldn't be like the world. We shouldn't lord over others and serve ourselves. We should not be like that. All the things that James is going to talk about in all these chapters, just take this ride with us. There are things that are common in the world, but we should not be corrupted by the world. We should follow Jesus. And so sometimes when people look at the Christians in the church and they say, well, if that's what Christians are all about, if that's what Jesus, following Jesus is about, I don't want any part of that. And if that's your feeling, if you're watching online, or in, if anyone today is saying, I don't know about this whole Jesus stuff, because, I mean, I've seen Jesus people. I get it. I, 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 we're a big turnoff sometimes. And I, Speaking on behalf of all the capital C church, you know, there's been a lot of bad things done in the name of God. But that's not what Jesus taught that's actually very human. The reason it's frustrating when you see it in Christians is because while it's very human to act that way, people who name God and follow Jesus ought to be different. We ought to be better. We ought to not be that way in how we treat one another. And so I get the tension, but looking at the Savior, James says pure righteousness, pure religion, genuine is to not be corrupted by the ways of this world and how we act and how we behave towards others, but actually it means serving, it's caring for the orphans and widows. And as we said last week, in that context, orphans and widows had no rights, only men owned property, you were destitute, without hope, there was no systems in place to help anybody officially. So what James is referring to on a broader scale is that we should be able to help those people who can't help themselves and those people who could do nothing for us in return. To serve people who can't pay us back, to help people who can't boost our star, to help people who truly need something from us. With that background in mind, let's start chapter 2 and we'll do the first nine verses today. And I want to remind you before we get involved in chapter 2 of a couple things here. He's talking, and these, these thoughts connect to each other. These thoughts connect with each other. Like, again, I've said this before. The chapters and verse numbers weren't written by James or anyone in the Bible. Like when James was writing this letter, he wasn't like saying, okay, end chapter 1, start chapter 2. That was done by people like us later on in history so that we could reference back to parts of this letter easier by saying James chapter 4 verse 7. You know, we could find it. But he just wrote a letter. So when we see these divisions, sometimes the chapters and verses break thoughts down that are continuing. And chapter 2 is kind of a continuation of this thought in chapter 1 about caring for those who can't pay us back and not being corrupted by the systems of the world and how we look out for ourselves over all others. But again, as James is pointing out, we tend to get worldly. We fall in love with the greed, the power, the fame. We serve ourselves, the things of this world. There's a statement that you may have heard in your background. Um, I've heard it throughout my life, especially in corners of the church world. And, and, and it's, an, it's, it's a cliche that I know why it's there and it's not completely wrong, but it's not really well-worded. It can convey the wrong message as well. So it's good and bad. Let I me mean, just tell it to you. You've probably heard it. The statement goes like this. Sometimes we can be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that statement before besides me, anybody else? Okay. Sometimes we be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. I know what they're trying to say. What they're trying to say is that some people can be so mindful of things especially that they forget to be any good to anyone else. But I don't think the statement's accurate because I don't think the problem is that people are too heavenly minded. I think that the problem in, in the statement is trying to say what it should say better is there are people who are religiously minded. They are basically very earthly religious. Like they are, they are, they are no earthly good because they have a, they built a religion that names God, but basically leverages their own power, their own authority, their own strength. And they want to be so, they, so they, in the name of God and religion, they're so mindful of that stuff, but they're, they're no earthly good. But it's not, that's not, not being heavily minded. Because I think if we were mindful of what Jesus did and what he taught, And what he did for us, we would be a lot of earthly good. The problem is, is that we get earthly minded. And we make our religion to be worldly. We make our religion to be earthly minded, which means it has to benefit me. And when we get that way, when we're that earthly minded in our religion, we're no good at all. We're just no good at all. So I want to revisit that later, but but, um, a reminder as we chapter 2 that these thoughts right here connect to each other. So continuing from verse 27 to chapter two and verse one, James says this next. He says, "My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others?" That's a powerful statement in so many ways. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith? Isn't that good? It's the whole cultural thing. How can you claim to be a Christian if you do this or that? That's what James is doing here. How can you claim to have faith? You know, that's the key. Is where's our faith at? We'll come back to that later. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious? Isn't it interesting that James, who grew up with Jesus and didn't believe on Jesus for years and was skeptical and dismissive of him, now looks at him as his glorious Lord, Jesus Christ? What a difference the resurrection made, right? Our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. How can you claim to have faith in him if you favor if you favor some people over others. And that's what he was saying in the last verse of the last chapter. When we neglect the poor and the needy and the people who could do nothing for us, and, fa- uh, and we favor people who can benefit our star, help us, That's we're corrupted by, this, by worldly thinking. How can we claim to have faith in God and do that? He expounds in verse 2. He says this. For example, Suppose someone comes into your meeting, I'm going to pause there, meeting is referring to their assembly where they gathered for services like this. Uh, The word that Jesus gave was the Greek word ekklesia, upon this rock of my assembly, my, my, my gathering, my meeting. We've used the word church in English. I think it's the downside of the word church as we think of a building, but it was never about a building, it was about an assembly of people meeting wherever they could meet in the name of Jesus. And James is saying when you come to your ecclesia, your assembly, your meeting, when someone comes into your gathering and they're dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. Now, fancy does not mean formal or informal. I know churches, people, sometimes in American culture, we still fight with an old school mentality of dressing up formally for church or casually for church. And that's, that's just stupid church fights issues that some people have and hopefully we don't. Hopefully not. It's referring to whether it's, it's my... No matter, matter what kind of wardrobe I'm wearing, it's the fancy. I could be in a very expensive designer, casual clothes or formal clothes. But someone comes in and they're dressed up to the nines. They've got fancy labels and they're just, they're wearing, I mean, they're just dressed. They, you could tell by their clothing, they have money or they, at least dress like they do. And they have expensive jewelry. Not the cheap stuff that I usually look to, <laughs> look to buy. I mean, expensive clothes. I mean, they, they, these people are, they're bougie, okay, They're they're just, they come in and they they walk in the room looking all good. And then another comes in who is poor. Dressed in dirty clothes. They don't have the fancy stuff. And they don't have clean clothes. They're obviously two classes of people in the world's economy coming into the building. Coming into the meeting, wherever that's at. And James says, suppose this happens. Verse 3, verse 3 he says, If you give special attention... And a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, "You can stand over there, or, or, or I'll sit on the floor." Right? Like, how horrible is that? I like, literally, how horrible is that? I mean, this seats—you know, like, hey, come up front. We want we want you up front because you look good, and we want to make hey, we want to get you where the camera will catch you because you you make the make us look better. Didn't have cameras back then, but I'm just saying. We want to get you up here in the main section. Uh, This guy, oh man, he looks like a case. That person looks like a lot of work. They're going to drain us. Just find a spot, you brother, man. Hey, what can, what can we do for you, and what can you do for us? (laughs) I mean, hey, this guy's rich. You have special seats. Now, when I read this verse before we go on, I'm reminded of a of a time in church history that's very disturbing, and I want to reiterate. Over-reiterate, so forgive me for my tendency to be redundant. But uh, these aren't church problems. These are human problems. The problem is that church people should behave better than the world but, because we are following Jesus, but we don't. So that's why it makes it look so bad. So when I put out a church problem, it's a human problem. Humans have always favored those who could get them a farther ahead in life. People have, humans have always said, what can you do for me? Can, can me helping you make me rich or famous or popular or wealthy or powerful or give me a promotion, give me more stuff, get me ahead in life? Humans have always favored the wrong people in their own circle. So it's not a church problem particularly, but it's easy to pick on people who name Jesus and don't figure out how to do it better. So one of the sad things you read about in history in the European church and the American church, this country, in its early years before, you know, centuries ago, um, was sad is you hear stories about people, what they used to do, maybe you know this, people could come and they could buy their pews, they, said they didn't have chairs, they had pews. I think that's a funny term, by the way. I know that that's how churches used to be. We have pews. Who named them pews? Anyhow? That's a terrible name. I just think they should re- rename that. I anyhow, mean, I can think of a thousand reasons why you call it a pew, but none of them are probably appropriate to joke about in church. But anyhow, um, they have their pews and people would, would basically could rent or lease or buy their seats at the church. And the idea was that maybe they helped pay for them or whatever, but basically it was a status thing. And so the seats up front were the wealthier seats. You know, you pay a little bit more. I know that's kind of countercultural to us because in America today, you know, I'm not looking always for the front row at church. Some of us do, but uh, um, otherwise, you know, but at the ball, picture the ball game. The ball game is where you wanted the best seats, right? Like if you go to a football game tomorrow, well, you can't because it's off season, but this fall, if I go to Lucas Oil Stadium and watch my Colts play football and the 50-yard line front row seats That's going to cost me a few dimes. That's going to cost me a few dimes, right? You know what seats I usually get at Lucas Oil Stadium? Nosebleeds. Someone say the nosebleed word. That's right. I mean, I got the binoculars so I can just look down and see the people in the 50-yard line and wish I was them. Like, uh, what's that? A few extra dollars? Yeah. A few hundred extra dollars. I mean... That's what it is. So anyhow, you know, people pay for better seats. And so in the early church, hundreds of years ago, in churches across Europe and America, people would come into some church circles, and the seats. Well, this is your role. You basically pay for this thing. You claim this thing through your donations or whatever, and that was your seat. And of course, though, up front, it was it was status. It was saying, "Look who we are." And then, of course, the poor could find a spot in the back, where if they're all sold out, stand around or sit on the floor. That's embarrassing. You know, it's really horrible. Also, is in the years of slavery across Europe and America, where the uh, you, could see, you see the reports of how the if the slaves even, were even allowed to come into the church without having their own church, they were given a special section to sit somewhere else, barred off from everybody else. How horrible! And people call themselves Jesus followers, and they did that. And and, and we don't do that today. And I don't know of any churches anywhere in the world that you know you pay for your seats. This is a rabbit trail, but I'm going to say I do know some people in churches today, uh, you know, in my experience, who think they own their seat at church. Like if anyone wants to they're like you're in my seat. So you don't have a seat. No one has a seat. No. One, just here's a newsflash for Lighthouse Church: No one has a seat. Okay, I just want to make that clear. That's not my sermon today, but I just want to say it while we're talking about it. No one has a seat. Like um, it, it, I've heard, and maybe you've heard the the cringe stories of someone coming to visit a church and they sit down, and someone walks up to them and is like, oh, excuse me." That's my seat. I've heard of someone walking out and never coming back to the church because someone told them they were in their seat. Now, I've, I've not seen that personally, but when I hear that, I'm like, ew. Like, okay, listen, I just want to say this. This is I'm on a rabbit trail, but listen, if you ever, if you're the kind of person who gets emotionally attached to your chair, like your spot in the church, if you're the kind of person who gets anxious to where, if you came in and someone else was sitting there, you'd be like, you know, and you'd be tempted to say something or, or ruin your day. Here's what I want you to do. I want you from now on to start sitting in a new spot every single week to break yourself of your stupid habit of caring about your seat so much. And so, you know what I'm saying? Anyhow, that was for free. And that's not because anybody is sitting. We have some guests like you right now. You're not in anyone's seat, by the way. You're not. Um, I should should say something like that. You're going to be thinking, is he saying this today because someone was No. That's not who our church is, right? It better not be. Um, but if you're anxious about your chair, you should probably just move around periodically just to mix it up on yourself, okay? That's just free advice. That was bonus. I won't even charge extra money for that, that little extra part of the sermon right there. Um, that was a joke. I don't charge money. But thank you for paying me. Okay. James says, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, in other words, if your, church, if your meeting gives special deference to the powerful and the wealthy, and... You then look at the poor and say, ugh, uh, get, I don't even want to see you in my peripheral, ugh. I mean, you're like pushing them away and saying, man, just sit on the floor, sit somewhere else. What, we'll deal with your needs later, what a drain they are. Look at this person. They're special. Look at them, they're somebody. James says, well, doesn't this discrimination, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives. That word evil, he used that word last week too when he talked about putting the filth and evil away from us with our anger. He says we are evil, especially when we name Jesus as our Savior and God as our, as our uh, we worship him. We come to church and then we're like discriminating. That's horrible. There's no place, there should be no place in the Christian life for discrimination of any kind. But Not based on color, gender different types of sinners than you financial status just none of it we are all humans created by god in the image of god needing the grace of god there should be some amazing there should be no discrimination ever and in this case he's dealing with financial discrimination and i want to i want to say this to you as i think about that before we move on to verse 5 i want to think i want to make the statement to you the uh, the people the people that you favor the people that i favor They reveal who our faith is in. The people that you favor reveal who your faith is in. Like when when God tells me not to prefer people because they have wealth, but I sit there and say, ooh, whether it's my church life or my personal life, I'm going to take care of those people who could give me a promotion, who could give me a raise, who could give me some extra cash. Invite them to my thing, they'll let me, and theirs is nicer. If I make friends with them, they could benefit me. They can help my star rise. They could give me prestige, power, or wealth. When I favor those who could do something for me, I'm not doing what Jesus did for us. Jesus came down from the glories of heaven to, and left it all to come into our messy world for those who could do nothing for him, to, to bear our consequences, to pay for our sins, to rise again because he wanted to show us that he loves us, not because we could ever repay him, but because he wants us, he loves us, he values us, And so if we're going to be like him, we look at people who could do nothing for us and and say, you're just as important as anyone who could get me ahead in this world. Otherwise, we're being worldly. And, and, And so when we know that that's what Jesus did for us, when we know that's his example and that's what he teaches us to do, but we still favor those who can give us prestige, power, or wealth, we are revealing who our faith is in. We are showing we are showing our faith by saying, I don't have faith in God. I have faith that those people can better my life if I prefer, prefer them. Those people can better my life if I put them first. And our faith ought to be in God to when we say, I don't need to trust in man. I'm going to do what you called me to do and serve those who can do nothing for me in return, those who truly need. And I'm going to believe in doing so that, that, that I'm following you. That's who our faith is in. But the people you favor reveal who your faith is in. So James continues to appeal in verse five. He says this. He says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? And this is a truism. We know this is true. Like you can just travel the world, travel our own nation here, travel the world, and the poor people are the more inclined they are to faith. It, why is it so hard for people with means to have, have faith in God? Like Jesus once said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's not discriminating against rich people. He's not saying that they are less than in God's eyes. It's not a jab against rich people for being bad just because they're rich. What he's saying is this. The tendency, once we become wealthy, is to become self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. When we have a lot, we tend to think I don't need God as much. That's why I believe, if we think about it, the Europe, the West and America, the Western culture has become so drifted from the faith. The gospel is spreading like crazy in much of the world today. But you see in Europe and in America and a lot of Western nations, where we've been first world developed nations, you see a lot of drift from faith. In America, you see a lot of drift from faith. Why? Because we're so wealthy compared to much of the world. The wealthier we are, the more self-sufficient we are, the less we need God. We have different kinds of problems than people in parts of the world. And because we're well off, we just tend to drift and get petty in our faith. It's just hard for the wealthy to to, to have that. But the poor, boy, it's so easy for them to know. See, we all get what we have from God. But when you're poor, you know you need him. We sometimes forget it. And And so here's what James is saying. God chose the poor in this world to be rich in faith. It's one of the ways he's blessed them. He hasn't tempted them through the ruin of riches. And he says, they're the ones who inherit the kingdom. that He's promised to those who love him because they love him. Verse 6, he says, but you dishonor the poor. You, You dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich, he says? Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Like, isn't it the rich people? Look, again, being rich isn't bad, but isn't it? The powerful, look, we all know this is true. I don't care about your politics. We all know it's true. The most powerful rich people control things. It's just how it is. And I mean, they you can, they can, legislation, they can they can pay for the best lawyers to get out of the most trouble, they can, they can take advantage. I mean, they have all the tools to get ahead, to stay ahead, and they have the, the, the money and the systems in place, whether it's investing in better and faster than you can, or whether it's, uh, you know, getting ahead and, in legal, I mean, it's just the money favors. You know, the, the system favors the people with money. In the world, it's always been that way. And, and James is like, you're you're catering to people who oppress you. And in the court is why? Why are you? Why are you catering? Why are you favoring the rich? While they're rich, while the poor around them are not cared for. And I don't want us to miss this. This is so important because. This is why we favor the rich. Some of us would be like Arlen or James. That is why I favor the rich, because they can drag me into court. Like, that's why I do it. I'm terrified. Like, you got to better, you got to better dance their dance and sing their song. I mean, that's why we do it, because they are They can make a difference. I mean, I would be, it's like the mean kid in school, the mean girl at school. Some of you guys went to school, and there's the mean girl, and no one wanted to be in her wrong side because she terrorized whoever she was putting down. So everyone was her friend out of fear. To be on the wrong side of her in the bad day, you know? And something like I gotta be friends with the people I'm afraid of. And so you're the rich, I mean, they can help me get ahead, but they can also hurt me if I'm on the wrong side. That's why we favor them. But again, where's our faith at? Are we serving those who can get us ahead or not put us down? Or are we serving those who truly need help like God served us and called us to do as well? Like we should be better than that. And then James even adds this in verse 7. He says, aren't they the rich? Are they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? In other words, as Christians, we should be bearing the name of Jesus like a banner. And that ought to matter to us. And we ought not be okay with it being slandered through our own life, through our own bad example of how we live as Christians. But by others, we ought to be like, no, this is who Jesus is. He's good. He's good. He's a Savior. we got good news to bear, and we're positive about it. We're representing it well, and we aren't for it being slandered by us or by anybody, including those who are trying to impress by hiding our faith. Like, this is better than my Cubs shirt, you know? Like, this is like, I'm a Jesus follower. He's awesome. He's Lord. Let's worship. Let's raise our hands. We bear his name. And we want to live like him in this world. See, we tend to get it all backwards. And this is what James is saying today. And as we study this letter, we're going to see James say a lot of different things. But what he's saying today, and kind of last week at the end, is that we get it all backwards. We get it all turned around. We fear the powerful, forgetting that God is more powerful. We desire wealth, forgetting that God owns it all. We live for this life, forgetting that there's another one to come. We're impressed with the wealthy, forgetting who it is that God sees as rich in his economy. We desire status, forgetting that the highest banner to carry is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just called, and he's trying to reset the faith community. As he said earlier, how can we claim to have faith and miss this? I know that's the way of the world, but let's not be corrupted by the world. Let's be followers of Jesus. Let's love unconditionally. Let's show a better way. Let's not be angry like last week. Let's not be quick to talk and slow to listen. Let's do the opposite. Let's let's love. Let's serve those who can't help us back. Let's care for others. Let's not show favoritism and preferential treatment. And then James closes in the last two verses that we'll see today. He closes this section by calling us to the royal law. In verse 8, he says this Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. To which, if you were with us last week, we kind of set the stage up for this last week. But I want to remind us someone could have raised their hand, and someone near James could have been, James, you made a typo. He wasn't typing though. You made a right, right-o. You made a right-o here. Um, you said the, the royal command was love your neighbor as yourself. James, didn't you mean Didn't you mean the first part too? Isn't the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself? You missed that first part. But again, we've been saying this for some time. Jesus, when he gave the summary of the Hebrew law in those two commands, love God and love your neighbor love others, he was not making. Two, he was saying they go together. In other words, the way we love God is by loving others. We can't divorce that. You don't love God and somehow treat people bad. You just can't do that. So remember when Jesus was going to the cross the next day, his last night with his disciples, he gave brand new marching orders. He gave brand new marching orders before he went to the cross. He wrote a new command. Like, you don't do that unless you're God, and he was God. So he wrote new command, new marching orders. And he said, here it is, love one another as I've loved you. He didn't even address the love God part. Because the idea that we see in the New Testament, the thing that we see in the Christian scriptures is that we're called to have faith that God loves us, to have faith in God's love, and because of it, to love him by loving each other the way that he loved us, by serving as he served us. And so, as you'll see throughout the New Testament, everything in the New Testament writing is built on that ethic that Jesus gave us, to love each other. And so when James says the royal law, he wasn't missing the mark here. He was like, this is it. This is the whole summary. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we're called to do. If we believe, if we have faith, what did they say earlier? We claim to have faith in God, that he loves us, that he's there. Then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. And it's good when we obey it. Verse nine, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. That word sin is not always favorable in modern culture and sometimes in churches, I guess. And those who do like to talk about the word sin usually like to say, we start, we're going to still call sin, sin. They usually mean all the other people that they don't like their, their types of bad behavior. We should still call their sin, sin. But James is good at calling our sin, sin. Isn't that fun? He says, we're committing a sin when we do the things that we think aren't that big of a deal, but God thinks are a very big deal when we favor some people over others. That, my friends, is a sin. He says, we're guilty of breaking the law. Well, that's kind of harsh. But he, at the beginning of this chapter, in verse one, if we were to go back, don't turn it on the screen, but if you were to look back at verse one, you'd see him saying, How can we claim to have faith and favor some of our others? Now he's saying, When we favor some of our others, we're committing a sin. Elsewhere, he'll tell us, Whatever is not of faith is sin. We're called to not sin, but to have faith in God by not being favorites, having favorites, not showing favoritism, not being prejudiced, not being discriminatory to anybody. Otherwise, we're guilty of breaking the law. What law? The law of Christ. The new command, the new marching order of Christ. The royal law. The, the last thing he gave his, his followers before the cross. Love each other the way I've loved you. In the way that I've loved you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't break that law. So as we wrap up this portion of our studies today, before we sing some couple songs and go home, Make some announcements. As we wrap up this portion, I want you to think about it this way. If we would just think like God thinks, and we we can, we have the mind of Christ through the scriptures here. If we would see what Jesus taught us to do and what Jesus modeled for us to do and get in God's mindset We're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not just some far-off mystical place. It's God bringing his kingdom into our world here as well. It's it's, it's both forever and it's now. It's being heavenly-minded. Here's what I want to say to us as we go today. If we were more heavenly-minded, we would do more earthly good. If we were more mindful of what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, what he showed us to do as an example, what he did for us, if we thought about what he's done for us for eternity, forever through his grace, and if we thought about what he's called us to do in this world to point people to the good news of Jesus, the good news that God is love, the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his son, if we were more heavenly minded and we appreciated what that meant for us and what God showed us through his example and his word, If we were more heavenly minded, we would do more earthly good. We would help more people. We would serve. We would give of ourselves. We would sacrifice the way he did. We would serve the way he did. We would love the way he did. We would be good. We would actually be a force of good. Boy, when Christian people who name Jesus can be a force of good in this world, and how they serve their community as they serve other people, as they help those in need. And people say, wow, why are you doing this? I'm doing this because I'm serving you because God loves you and so do I because God has served me and God has served you. I have good news for you. It's not me being good to you. It's God being good to all of us. Let me point you to him. Let me point you to some good news, the gospel. If we were more heavenly minded, boy, would we do some earthly good. That's what the church ought to be. So yeah, that's fine, but if I do that, who's gonna get me ahead in this world? I gotta take care of the people who have prestige, power, and money. Who's your faith in? Is your faith in God to take care of you? Because, I say it this way, I can take care of you when I believe that God will take care of me. I'm free. I don't need to worry about who i got to impress and how i got to get ahead in this life. I don't have to fight the fight that would be the worldly system to get ahead and dog-eat-dog survival. I, I can put all that game aside and believe that God will take care of me and therefore I'm free to take care of you. If we can figure that out, if we be that heavenly minded, we do some earthly good. But it comes from our faith. It comes from our faith that God will take care of us. Let's be people of faith. Let's prioritize, honor, pursue, and serve what God has modeled for us through Jesus Christ.